Hello everyone, I am Esra, this is Critical Minds. Welcome to the second episode of the show. I am happy to have you here with me today. Um, today we are going to discuss uh, a really important concept that has uh, been very impactful on um, not only socio-legal scholarship, but also uh, in social sciences and humanities as well. It's the concept of intersectionality. It's a part of uh, part of the fundamental readings we are doing together. Last week we talked about the structure of the law, who writes the law, for whom the law is written, who is the subject of the law and the logic of the law, etc. This week we are steering our wheel towards more uh, structural issues within the law, particularly to race. So let's start. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Okay, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is a legal scholar. Uh, she introduced the concept of intersectionality, uh, with which uh, she challenged us to critically analyze the hegemonic structures that shape our society. She emphasizes that these structures are imbued with ideological biases, as the laws and policies that govern us are often crafted and influenced by those who occupy those positions of privilege and hegemonic power which might remind you one of the points I made last week that uh, when we question what is justice, um, we we talked about the Plato's book, uh, The Republic, and one of the characters in the book said, justice is in the interest of the stronger. It is there to serve the stronger, right? So Kimberly Crenshaw here is also referring to the same thing that the hegemonic structures shape our society and those are the structures shaped by the ideological biases that serves to those who occupy the positions of privilege and power, right? So uh, that means let's keep an eye on the structure itself. In her 1989 essay, titled Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critic of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory and Anti-Racist Politics, uh, Crenshaw focused on three legal cases that dealt with the issue of both racial discrimination and sex discrimination. By the way, Crenshaw is a lawyer, um, so this is uh, her experience of uh, being in the field uh, and being a part of the legal landscape. Uh, so it's coming from there. Uh, so in each of these cases, the three cases she talks about in the article, courts did not allow black female plaintiffs to allege discrimination on the basis of both race and gender. So in one of the cases, the Graffinfield Graf- <laughs> uh, case, a black woman working for an automotive company, uh, she filed for uh, for discrimination uh, against the company on the basis of race. But the judge returned a, a file and decided that there was no racial discrimination because the company hired black men. And then same person filed for uh, discrimination uh, based on gender. And the judge did the same thing, returned the case and said, uh, there is no gender discrimination because the company hires women. 
all of whom happen to be white women. So you see, in this case, uh, the uh, person at the center of the issue is sitting at the intersections of race and gender. But when you look at the anti-discrimination doctrines, anti-discrimination laws, and this is based on the US context, by the way, it says you can apply if you are being discriminated against uh, against by one of the following categories. And those categories are gender one category, race one category, and uh, religion and uh, ethnicity, etc. one category. So it doesn't allow you to apply for both. That means the system is disregarding or being oblivious to the fact that you cannot be uh, discriminated or oppressed by multiple systems of structures, by multiple uh, oppressive structures. So it is uh, looking at the problem as a single, single and isolated issue, isolated from other markers of the identity, right? But are we single-sided? Do we have only one part to our identities? Am I only a woman or am I also a woman of color or am I also a, I don't know, able-bodied woman, a short woman, etc. So you see, we have multiple markers to our identities, right? And all those markers creates a unique form of oppression for each individual. So even though I'm able-bodied, I will not face the same type of discrimination perhaps compared to a woman who is much taller than I. I know this sounds like a very simple issue, but it's just to give you a simple example. So everyone's experience of oppression and discrimination will be different. That's what Kim Lekron's work shows us. Hence the term uh, intersectionality is coined. And with this term, Crenshaw exposes the structural problem. Right? As a legal scholar, she exposes the structural problem. And she argues that this narrow perspective of discrimination posed a conceptual limitation of single issue analysis. So it's a conceptual limitation because of the single issue analysis. She says, and I quote, interlocking systems of oppression cannot be adequately addressed separately. Therefore, she challenges us to recognize and dismantle the interconnected systems of power and privilege that perpetuate inter inequalities, right? So again, uh, drawing our attention to the multitude layers of oppression that come together and create a unique form, form of uh, oppression, right? Okay. So, Crenshaw's uh, work focus on the ways in which the law can perpetuate inequalities along the lines of uh, race, first of all, class, gender, and sexuality. So she says that law has a social basis that both shapes and is shaped by the society in which it operates. That means in a society, uh, like in the States, or let's give the example of Canada, uh, we will see more racial or colonial effects in the way law is written 
and executed, right? So that's uh, what she's referring to. But she challenges us to recognize the interconnectedness of social categorizations, such as race, gender, class, um, sexuality, and so on, and how they interact to create unique experiences of oppression and privilege. For example, uh, similar to the one I gave, uh, she says a black woman may face discrimination based on both her race and gender, which cannot be fully understood by looking at either category in isolation. So needless to say, her work on intersectionality has been influential in highlighting the ways in which the law can perpetuate racism and white supremacy. She argues that racism and white supremacy were defining elements of the American legal system. She has also focused on how the law responds to issues that include gender and race discrimination and how anti-discrimination laws often looked at gender and race separately rather than considering their intersections. So this is the over, uh, over um, the arc of her work, right? It's very important um, in the sense that we might be overseeing um, the types of uh, or the varieties of oppression uh, someone can face due to uh, their unique, um, the uh, access of their identities, right? So that's, uh, in the sense, Crenshaw's work is uh, very important to uh, keep in mind. It is um, important to the degree that now in many of the governmental agencies, sorry, in many of the governmental agencies in Canada, we see that the mandate of the organization includes intersectionality in their visions that they will uh, they will recognize the uh, intersections of oppression and uh, and that they will pay attention uh, to how uh, different identities can face different uh, forms of oppression and that they will not have one recipe for all that's the problem uh, we discussed last week as well, right? Having one recipe, one law uh, for all problems. As if the subject of the law is just one category, one uh, homogenous uh, category, but it's not like that. We know that, right? So last week we touched on the gender part and how it is gendered. And this week, we touched on race. So as we move forward, it gets more and more complicated, I know. But remember, we are here to challenge the structures of power, right? And if you don't challenge them, they will keep reproducing the same uh, forms of discrimination, right? Okay. Um, so maybe after today's episode, uh, I might leave you with a couple of questions to think about. Maybe we can ask how does intersectionality challenge our understanding of discrimination? Or maybe next time we see a black man getting arrested or a black woman is police brutality against black woman. Maybe we can ask in what ways does the law perpetuate inequalities? 
and or how can we use law as a strategy to achieve meaningful change now this last point might sign you know might sound contradictory to future episodes uh, i i'm not a carceral scholar i am um, an abolitionist and the last question might sound like it's contradictory to this point because it's asking us if we can consider law as a strategy to achieve meaningful change right that means uh, it's accepting the rules of the game and playing along uh, inside uh, the game right so abolition is the opposite but abolition also when we come to that episode we'll talk more about that but to give you a quick snapshot abolition is not asking to destroy all the prisons and the police system in one day and wake up to a world where there's no uh, there's no surveillance there's no incarceration etc it's all about imagining and creating livable futures because i assume if you are here listening to me we all know that the prison industrial complex is not a solution to crime but is the perpetrator of the crime. So for those of you who are curious and want to learn more about the connections between the race, law, surveillance, or disproportionate rates of incarceration of racialized communities, especially in the context of US, I highly recommend you check out the documentary on Netflix called The 13th. So that documentary is a very good uh documentary in showcasing the historical uh background of the current prison system in the US and how it's a it's a colonial uh legacy how it's it's an extended an extension of slavery so i would highly recommend you check that out okay um I think this is all I want to say. It's a short reading, um, the 1989 article. Of course, she has written more after that, and her work has been taken up by many scholars who wrote books and books on intersectionality. Um, but I want to bring in the fundamental reading because it's where... Uh, where the concept of intersectionality is introduced into scholarship and it is still today very much uh, assigned as one of the readings in critical race theory classes, any classes related to law or sociological studies or racism, uh, etc. So that's why I want to bring that in. But another thing I want to close with is intersectionality is obviously uh, opens our eyes to multiple forms of discrimination that can create unique forms of oppression right but on the other hand some scholars are i i I don't know how to put this into nice (laughs) nicer words but um, they have taken up intersectionality I see making them a part of their work, uh, which is really nice. It should always be there. We should always keep an eye on uh, the um, intersections of different identity markers. But the 
problem emerges is when they obsess over intersectionality, the concept itself, rather than what's happening to people, what's happening to community, right? Uh, actually, I think Kimberly Crenshaw is also uh, very much aware of this because in one of her TED Talks, the, the very last one, I think it was on um, in 2018, she emphasizes what intersectionality is. She says it's a framework to help us understand the systemic problems, right? But the scholars I, I referred to earlier, they make intersectionality... Uh, how should I put this? Um, I mean, intersectionality concept, the concept of intersectionality has become the focal point of their research. Therefore, they keep producing the theoretical work, which is nice for doing our understanding of the concept. But intersectionality, as Crenshaw puts it in the article and the TED talk show, is meant to help us see the multitude layers of oppression it's not just there to self-indulge or it's not just there to have a theoretical understanding of uh, just the theoretical it's not just a theoretical discussion that's what Crenshaw was trying to uh, say in my opinion because we see scholars are I mean I have even uh, I even heard scholars working on projects uh, to create an intersectionality manual, which is, I don't know, it's it's against intersectionality itself, right? <laughs> because if you're creating the manual and uh, putting the categories in it, uh, that means you will be leaving out some categories, right? Because it's, it's inevitable. But I don't think it was Crenshaw's intent uh, that we write manuals, we write these checklists for for scholars or for police etc but it's about not seeing an issue as an isolated issue from a racial issue from race or a, sorry a racial issue from gender or an issue about uh, sex work separate from race right for instance sex workers are uh, disproportionately uh, exposed to violence in comparison to general population. That's for sure. But when you look deeper, you see migrant sex workers, Asian sex workers, black sex workers, or indigenous sex workers are even further disproportionately impacted by violence. So how do you explain this difference? if you don't look into racism, if you don't look into colonialism, right? So if you just say sex workers are all, um, you know, subject to violence and claim as some of the transcripts of the courthouse says it's the quote-unquote nature of the work, then you are disregarding the colonial effect. You are disregarding the racial effect in the violence. So in my opinion, that's what all intersectionality is about. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll leave you with this. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Talk to you next time.